0: You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of ICMforum.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Chris, and in this episode, we will dive into one of 2023's not only most talked about films, but most divisive, Ari Aster's Bo is Afraid. Called everything from a boring mess to a stunning masterpiece, this three-hour epic of a terrified 50-something man's frantic attempt to get back home to his mother's house has captured the attention of the internet. In particular, in how it lost the attention of many of the commentators. When making the film, Astor himself described uh, Bo is Afraid as a four-hour-long nightmare comedy. and. Boy, do I think the haters are glad one hour hit the cutting room floor. Uh, Other than that, uh, the description is as accurate as you can get. It's indeed a waking existentialist nightmare, drenched in fear from beginning to end, as Jacqueline Phoenix Bow is in constant distress, be it mildly uncomfortable or just all-out terror. He's confused, desperate. Horrified and showing it all in his face and body language. Everything and everyone seem to be out to get him. And things can only get worse. The film brings to mind everything from After Hours to Charlie Kaufman and great surrealists like Wojciech Haas. Because yes, Bo is Afraid is apologetically surreal and never attempts to make coherent narrative sense in the most literal sense of the word. Nothing in this film should be seen as literal. Bo is Afraid is the longest A24 production to date, and it is hard not to accept it as one of the most artistically daring and creative films to break into the mainstream this decade. It slips from tableau to tableau, albeit lingering in each world and atmosphere for a considerable time. It even mixes visual styles. Is this the dawn of a new era of directorial freedom, or is it the heaven's gate of the modern era? Evidence for what big studios have so often argued, that the creative freedom of directors must be managed to ensure that films do not become self-indulgent, unappealing, messes that mass audiences just cannot get into. And that is the very question we will be diving into today. Is it a complete failure, a masterpiece, or something in between? Why is it so divisive? What does it all mean? Oh, and what exactly is Bo so afraid of? So, as I bring in my three absolutely wonderful co-hosts, Saw Tom, and for the very first time on Talking Images, Jonathan, it might be wise to take a quick temperature check to see just how heat this discussion will be and how divided we are. And we can probably start with you, Tom, as you are one of the biggest Aster fans I know. What did you think of Bo is Afraid? Well, Chris,
1: I was quite torn with Bo is Afraid. As you said, I love Aster's filmography to date hereditary was a brilliant horror that seemingly came out of nowhere and then midsummer built on that with an even better uh, approach to horror i'd say that's near masterpiece work for me so my expectations were very high i was not concerned that this wasn't going to be a conventional horror because astra is clearly a very talented director and i was hoping that branching out into a bit more of a surreal, nightmarish work might have worked well for him. And there are some elements of the film that I really loved and some not so much, which left me torn. I'm somewhere in the middle. It's a very ambitious film. It's also a very difficult film as a viewer. And I'm glad that he's made it. It's an impressive feat and it was an interesting experience. But it is... In my opinion, his weakest film to date, I would still say it's in the six out of ten range. You know, it's still a positive experience, but it just didn't live up to the um, aforementioned films that he, he created previously that really connected with me.
0: Wow, so the fandom might be turning their uh, back to Aster a bit there. Um, what about you, Saul? Because I remember when uh, we recorded our Best Films 2019 episode uh, and uh, Tom was singing The Prizes of Midsummer, you were very cold on that film. How did you react to *Boys the Fred?
2: I'm not sure if I'd say that I was very cold on Midsummer, but I definitely didn't get the praise for it and I, I still don't. I mean, I've only seen it the one time, but. For me, it was pretty much not more than, more than just a tribute, it was pretty much a remake of The Wicker Man, but with a more complex mythology, which did nothing to really, I don't know, I'm not, we're not going to get into a midsummer discussion at the moment, but anyway, I thought that film was widely overpraised. Hereditary I liked better the second time round, but the first time around didn't really do much for me. Even the second time round, I sort of get more of what people like about it, but I still think it's widely overpraised. So whereas Tom went into *Boys was afraid with very high expectations, I went into it with very low expectations. And also quite contrary to Tom, rather than thinking that it's his weakest day, I actually think it is by far Asta's strongest and most mature film to date. It's interesting to hear Tom describe the film as being difficult. I guess it spins less of a conventional narrative. So I guess from that point of view, it might be difficult. But I guess in terms of the main character, I probably related to the protagonist in Bo is Afraid more than his main characters in his previous two films. So for me, the film was quite a success to the point that it was almost a favourite for me. All right, happy to hear that, Saul. So uh, now we're already getting
0: <laughs> everything turned around, which is very interesting. Uh, and that, that might be a very good moment to bring in uh, Jonathan. And as this is your very first time, Jonathan, why don't you, a- along with telling us all about your reaction to Bob Afraid and perhaps your history with Ari Aster as well, also tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got into uh, cinema? Uh,
3: yeah, hello, my name is Jonathan. Um... This is my first time ever doing a podcast full stop, really. So it's a very new experience. As far as my history with film goes, I suppose I think I got started kind of unusually when I was in primary school, when one of my best friends was able to watch lots of horror films and things like that, which I was not allowed to. So I kind of resorted to buying a lot of books about films that I was not allowed to watch necessarily and sort of flicking through the pictures on those and kind of going from there and there and going through various film guides and things like that. At the moment, as I'm doing this podcast, I'm sat next to about three bookcases full of uh, Blu-rays. I'd say, so that's kind of mainly where my focus lies—is on Blu-rays and sort of, um, yeah, boutique Blu-rays and like older films and things like that. So it's nice to actually see something from this year for this podcast. <laughs> it's not always what I focus on. <laughs> so uh, for the history with Ariaster in general, I saw um, Hereditary when it came out in the cinema. And I remember, I just remember thinking it was a very good horror film, kind of rev- removed from, you know, whatever, elevated horror or whatever it would be called. Just thinking, that's a good, scary horror film, black comedy, all good. Um, but I missed Midsummer; I never saw that one. So I kind of went into Bowie's Afraid, not really knowing what to expect. And I have to say, I really enjoyed it, actually. Mostly the sort of first, I'll say, two segments of the film. Very funny, very caricatured, and very anxiety-inducing, genuinely. Um, I think it sort of slipped a little bit in the middle when he gets into the forest, just to spoil that. I think it sort of worked its way back in at the end. But yeah, I'd say in general, I liked it a lot. Very good, yeah. So
0: I actually ended up uh, being uh, closer to tall uh, on all of this. I wouldn't say it completely blew me away. But I really enjoyed the style of was going for. I thought it captured the, the nightmarish world really well. Uh, it, it showcased just how terrified Jack Finn Phoenix was and it just brought it into this really heightened state of after of madness. So that that's something I really enjoy. I love thrill films in general, So this is a film qu- much more better cater to me than what Aster has generally made. I mean, I have to make a confession, I still haven't seen Hereditary, and I only really watched Midsummer because uh, Tom couldn't shut up about it. <laughs> so, so it would be interesting to see just how the four of us clash. So Tom, since you seem to have liked the film the least of all three of us, what was it that really didn't work for you here? I think...
1: A large part of what didn't work is the um, surreal touches that were introduced along the way. The third segment in particular lost me. There was a lot of meta elements in there that usually might have worked for me, but they were so at odds with the kind of intense, nightmarish horror of the first segment that it was jarring in a way that I, I didn't enjoy at all. The first segment of the film was much more similar to Asta's previous work, this intense, nightmarish scenario uh, where you're not sure what is real or not. And as Jonathan said, it's really anxiety inducing. There was some, you know, really nail biting scenes in there and a generous helping of, of black comedy as well, which seemed to be the driving force for Astra's previous work and that is why it connected with me but as it progressed the film just got stranger and stranger which isn't always necessarily a bad thing i'm open to strange films as well but it 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 just went a bit too far for me it began losing me as i said around around the third segment but i was still invested enough that i was intrigued as to what was going to happen and how it would pan out But it it was, sadly, a a disappointment as we got towards the end of the film.
0: And uh, since I'm always trying to stir fights, Saul, you might have liked this uh, the most, or at least along with me. When, When you hear Tom talk about the film this way, especially given that both of you, and all three of you, in fact, are horror fans, how do you react?
2: I do agree with Tom that the initial stretch, that first 45 minutes, is the best part of the film, so I entirely agree about that. And I do actually feel the film does lose its way a bit as it goes along, which is why it wasn't quite a favourite for me. Even though I still think it's Asta's best work, I guess what really carried the film for me was Joaquin Phoenix's performance and his character, and really getting into that mental headspace of being afraid and worried and concerned about everything. So, the character for me and the character progression still worked for me throughout. It still felt like this gigantic anxiety attack, but just a lot of the things along the way, especially towards the end, did feel a little bit I don't want to say random, but that's the best word that comes to mind. did feel a little bit random, and without watching it a second time, I have my doubts myself about how well it actually coalesces together. So, I completely understand why he didn't totally love the film. I didn't totally love it either. But I was surprised that it knocked it down so far in his esteem, whereas for me it was just what, you know, basically kept it at a 7 out of 10 rather than being an 8 out of 10 film.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think I don't – for the the third segment, I guess we'd call it like the forest segment. For me it was particularly the the sort of – longer dream sequence that kind of lost me, you know, where he sort of imagined himself in the play and sort of turning into the old man. I think, I don't know if it's necessarily the fact that it's sort of diverted away from the horror. I just kind of felt it's a bit just disconnected in general, just thematically, kind of stylistically. I'm still not really 100% sure what that was really going for in like a larger sort of thematic sense. Um, I don't know if anyone else has any (laughs) ideas.
0: That's a good question. I mean, I, I think I'm actually the only person who might have preferred the latter acts of the film, especially the play that was just all out uh, crazy. While the more heightened, exaggerated opener, um, I really enjoyed that. But it, it felt, I mean, what's, what's the name of that uh, film you really liked, Saul? Uh, the Palestinian Abroad. Uh, who was kind of just traveling and seeing the absurdity of uh, the world. I and mean, when he goes to the US, he says lots of people, you know, buying uh, machine guns in regular stores and carrying them around, et cetera. It must be heaven. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the first thing I I, I remember thinking when I started watching Pruits of is like, wow, this looks like, uh, you know, the, the, this must be heaven's interpretation of America, <laughs> because it's just like all out. Crazy everywhere on the street. Everyone's you know, either killing each other, being on drugs, robbing each other. You just have this, like, the scene where he just runs screaming and people try to kill him and get him. Like, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's this weird mix of, uh, over the top comedy. I enjoyed it. I thought that was, <laughs> like, have really good like, sense of just, okay, how do people with anxiety kind of see the world. But yeah, I just thought that was a little bit too much. While once it got all out into, you know, full on dream energy and things got even stranger, you started playing around with theatrical sets and you started building on, I suppose it's driving force throughout the film, which is his relationship with his mother and how he feels like he's, he can never live up to her. And uh, just all this guilt he seems to feel. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. That's kind of like the paranoia the entire films uh, plays on which was uh, very interesting to me. and kind of was a nice line throughout.
1: I think knowing your sensibilities, Chris, I can understand why you prefer the, the latter parts more than the, the former parts. And it is quite interesting the broad scope that Astors managed to fit into one film, you know, the difference between styles as the film progresses. There is almost like there's something in there for everyone but in a sense, I almost feel like that is potentially the film's downfall because, you know, I don't think there's as many people who are going to enjoy every single segment along the way because of the vast differences of styles. I know that you did somewhat, Chris, I know that you did, but I think most people are going to feel like, you know, there's a certain element of the film that's slightly weaker than the others because of the, you know, the disparity between styles. And it is a reflection of as ambition and. His his scope and it is impressive that he's you know managed to get the the funding to take on such a personal project but again i think that is ultimately the the downfall it's quite a personal work and it just tackles a lot throughout it's 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 long
2: run time something which i thought i might pose as a question although i don't know if we're going to get to it later on or not but throughout the film there are all these flash forwards to events that we see later on in the film so throughout we just keep seeing like little things like this like clip with him like sitting on top of this statue thing and like a clip of the uh, part leading up to the attic. So they've got all these hints dropped along the way of where the film is progressing so i don't know if i'd even really say it was a change of style as such it's more so and i can't find the words to express it but I don't know if really the style of the film changed so much as maybe the scope of it changed because it's originally just limited to the city. It's limited to his apartment building or the um, suburb that he lives in, which he thinks like Ilya Suleiman in, thinks is completely crime-ridden and crazy. And then the scope of that changes when he progresses and meets other characters along the way. And then he sort of gets sucked into his memory. So I think the scope of the film changed. I don't so much... I don't know if so much the style of it changes, especially because, like I said, we get all these hints along the way of events to come, which I'm really interested to see how that actually plays out on rewatch.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think certainly part of that is the fact that the sort of mother takes on a much greater, almost kind of like godlike role as the film goes on. Because I think at least some of the... Like premonitions of things that are going to happen. It's implied, uh, well, because there's that part where he watches the future, everything that happens in the future on the TV by fast forwarding, and I think the implication is that's all her sort of security cam footage of him in a way. <laughs> I never thought of that. That's interesting. I, th- I think that was the idea. That's what I took from it. I might be wrong, <laughs> but I kind of I I just preferred the sort of yeah the. City segment, and actually, my favorite segment was the um second one where he sort of goes to the suburban house um owned by the surgeon. So, I kind of just preferred that in general to the mother stuff, which I did like, but I think it was just a bit more limited for me, maybe.
0: Yeah, I, I can see that uh, to a point. I mean, the, <laughs> and like Tom said, it's interesting that uh, the teams change so much. I mean, all of them are, I, I suppose except perhaps a the theatrical element, they're all tied to horror in some way, but very different forms of horror. I mean, the first se- segment is just all out violence, chaos, this kind of dystopian reality where everyone's a killer. And then the second one is all smiles, everything's normal, but something's uh, bubbling under the surface. And then the <laughs> final segment uh, uh, at his mother's house is entirely heightened uh, over the top. Uh, and of course, you have a the theatrical segment in between, which uh, is uh, this kind of temi, not that quite animated, but you know, it uses a lot of just uh, stage sets that are flying around. And it's kind of not even dreamlike. It's just a, it's just a little thing of its own. And, and I can see exactly what Tom says, that, you know, <laughs> it's going to be a bit hard to find people who enjoy all four of those styles intermixed. So, so very, very brave of uh, us there indeed. And that pro- might be one of the things I appreciated the, the most about the film. But, but it's interesting, though, because uh, the, the film has sparked so much conversation. You have people who list it as their favorite films of the film of the year. You have huge publications uh, citing it as a masterpiece. You have al- also huge publications citing it as a complete mess and a failure. I think The Guardian gave it two out of five, for instance. <laughs> So while we are divided a little bit, we are divided between pretty good and, yeah, great. Somewhat close to being a favourite, but not quite there. Um, Why do you think uh, in the great, in the larger world, the
3: film was as divisive as it was? I mean, I think certainly some of it can be boiled down, just the fact that it's three hours long and it's sort of relentlessly and pointedly unpleasant. (laughs) Um, I mean, really, I can't think of a more... uh, abused and sort of mistreated character in a film than bow certainly recently i mean really he just kind of the poor guy just gets piled on pretty much for the entire thing so i think that can be maybe a bit hard to stomach for a lot of people
1: i would agree with jonathan that's a really nice way of putting it but getting piled on for three hours he really does have a have a hard time of it and to some people that may well be cinematic gold i'm usually all for films which are bleak and depressing and relentless. So if this is a film that you kind of connect with, I can understand why people may be having, you know, almost transcendental experiences with it, because if it's delivering what you're after for the whole three hours, then, yeah, you've you've hit the jackpot. But I think there's very few people who are going to have that experience with it. And conversely, I can also... Completely understand the people who will struggle with this film. If you think about it, Hereditary and Midsummer were somewhat divisive, although they were largely critically praised on release. But not everyone, um, regular audiences, I think, were, were quite torn with the, uh, the horror that was presented. It goes to some very dark places. And I think with Burr is Afraid, the runtime may put some people off, but. People who are fans of Phoenix, for instance, those who maybe like him in Her or even Joker, may go along to this film. You know, it's just expecting a a conventional narrative and being completely shut off by how abstract and and surreal it is. It's certainly not a film for for everyone. So, yeah, there's a a lot at play here as to why it's so divisive. But I think the good thing about it, this is, even though it's not a film that I loved. It's such a great talking point, and I love films that give rise to heated conversations. And to be honest, it, it allows you to get much more out of the film. So I'm glad that it's it's one that is uh,
2: provoking different reactions from people. I agree with what both of you guys have said about the length being a problem. I think with a lot of people uh, do have trouble with long films, and I don't know if this one's actually going to get this podcast is going to be released before or after the podcast you record on about wh- whether you do watch long films. So I think the length is probably going to be an issue and people are going to be sitting through it wondering where is it going and if you don't have the comfort of knowing where it's going that can be off-putting. I also agree that the film was heavily marketed as, as starring Joaquin Phoenix in this transformational performance and yeah, if you go into it expecting a film like Joker, or even expecting something like Walk the Line, this is a very different sort of film. So I don't think that helped, and I also don't think it really helped that people going into it knowing that it was from the director of Hereditary, knowing that a director from uh, director of Midsummer, because I guess both of those films are really about yeah horrors per se, whereas. Bo is Afraid is something a little bit more, I'd like to say a bit more ambitious, but it is more surreal. It's more of a character piece, whereas Hereditary was marketed as being the scariest film since The Exorcist. Well, that's how they marketed it over here at (laughs) least. And Midsummer was also marketed pretty much on uh, piggybacking on The Wicker Man. So you've got these uh, two films that were really uh, pretty much Praised for the, how horrific they are. And then you've got a film like this, which isn't really horror per se. I mean, it is a bit horrific in the sense that After Hours is horrific, to mention a film that Chris mentioned in the intro. So it is horrific, but it isn't quite horror per se. So I think the audience is going and expecting a film like um, Midsummer or Hereditary, like Tom, maybe. <laughs> I'm sorry, people like that. People are going in expecting a more conventional Joaquin Phoenix film, and people are going in expecting a 3-0 film to be something maybe as demanding, not as demanding, something as, you know, constantly assaulting like um, a superhero film, like some of those are really long these days. So somebody expecting like a heavy, like constant action film like that. I'm not surprised the film was a bit divisive. I think it might have served better if it went in with maybe a no-name actor. Um, with maybe um, uh, Astor using a pseudonym. I wonder how the film would have gone then.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, I, I do agree with you that the, the amount of fans and support, probably also, especially within the horror community, but, all, um, but also broader, who they came in expecting something similar might be really thrown off. I, I can see similarities uh, to Midsummer to a point. Um, Midsummer was also a film that kind of lead into some dark comedic elements and uh, let these more awkward situations uh, play out. But obviously, uh, Bo is Afraid goes much, much further. I I mean, uh, it's listed as a comedy first on IMDb. But I mean, this is a bit of a, a comedy like Synecdoche in New York, for instance, is a comedy. And, and Charlie Kaufman was someone I kept thinking about uh, throughout the film, too. I mean, it's like an existentialist uh, comedy slash horror film that just dives into like a more base instinct. In this case, just utter fear and uh, just lets us wallow in that fear. And that that was really really interesting in many ways, but I can see why a lot of people would be turned off. I, I also have to wonder if it has a special appeal to uh, people who have strained or perhaps toxic relationships uh, with their mothers. I mean, maybe that's where all of those uh, five out of five uh, star reviews are coming from.
1: <laughs> I like that notion, Chris. That's quite a funny idea. It it is. Very interesting, the humour in in, uh, Bo is Afraid. There's lots of kind of awkward comedy. I wouldn't say that I was laughing out loud at all. Maybe just some nervous laughter coming out (laughs) at the the odd and the the strange scenes, but the the twisted humour was a strong point of the film for sure. There was an excellent scene in the early segment that really tickled me, which was when um, Beau is in the bath and he looks up and finds that there's something else on the ceiling with him and just those awkward moments where he's he's kind of wriggling in the bath and you're waiting for the inevitable happen to some people that may well have been horrifying but to me that that really tickled me i i was just you knew what was going to happen and i was dying for it to happen and and when it did (laughs) yeah it was (laughs) it was superb but Again, the, uh, there's just so much strangeness and surrealness. I imagine that everyone watching the film will have find different parts of their humor that worked for them, different bits that may be funny for them, but other people would just be like grossed out or, or horrified by. I mean, I'm not sure what you guys found the, the funniest. It'd be interesting to see if you also thought the, uh, the bathroom scene was funny and whether there's any other scenes that uh, had you uh, in stitches.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that I don't think I laughed well, but I might have chuckled a little bit uh, during that bathtub scene. And uh, there might have been a few
3: more uh, awkward laughs along the way, though I, I can't remember them uh, offhand. I mean, I thought the bathroom scene was pretty scary, actually. I don't know if it was just me. Maybe I'm just a bit more worse. But um, I think I thought it was quite funny, actually. And I, would, I would definitely call it like a black comedy first over horror I don't know, maybe there's some parts that I shouldn't have laughed at that I did, but, you know, it definitely got me a few times. There's, there's particularly one point, which I, probably, I still don't really know if I'm supposed to laugh at, where he's where he's in staying in the sort of surgeon's house, and you can see that mom is doing a jigsaw, and then it sort of zooms in on the jigsaw, and you can see it's she's doing a massive, like, thousand-piece jigsaw of her dead son. And I don't really quite know why that made me laugh, but it did for some reason. <laughs> maybe
1: that's just me. <laughs> That is some very twisted humour, but, yeah, I, I don't I, I can't even recall that scene. It mustn't have registered with me, but, yeah. See, this is what I was saying. There's different, different bits that people will pick out on, and that is great. I
2: agree with you guys, or other than Jonathan, I agree with you that the bathroom scene was quite funny, especially with the... I, I don't know if I don't want to spoil or whatever, but um, it, when you see what's on the roof or whatever, and um, the, that itself was quite funny. Um, in terms of the overall film, yeah, there were bits and pieces of it, which I guess were a bit funny. I can't remember because I saw it in cinema, I guess a couple of months ago now. I can't remember exactly offhand when I was laughing and when I wasn't. But I think a lot of the laughs for me actually came in the final third of the film which we can't really get into without spoilers, but there are some really outlandish and wacky things occurring, and it's hard not to laugh at that sort of point.
0: So so Jonathan brought up that, that he saw the film primarily as a comedy. Did any of you guys see it primarily as a horror film?
1: For the first 45 minutes or so, I did see it primarily as a horror film, which perhaps lends itself somewhat to my disappointment that it it veered off that path to deliver something different. There's certainly some horror elements throughout most of the segments, other than the third one, but they did make way um, gradually for more elements of the black comedy and the surreal fantastical elements. So yeah, I, I think anyone who markets this as a horror film or recommends this as a horror film perhaps giving the wrong impression of the film certainly horror elements some very strong ones at that but not enough for it to be considered a horror film in my eyes
2: I think I can sympathize with the classification of it as horror but you get into this point where it's how much of it is horror and how much of it is stress and I think we might have even got into it in one of the podcasts we did about what scares us or maybe is stress overrated but the whole film plays out as basically this anxiety-ridden man imagining the worst possibilities at every single point at every single stage of his progression so for me it's a very anxiety-ridden film i guess i'd probably class it as closer to a thriller but it's more of a psychological thriller, or maybe psychological drama for me it's very much uh to do with what's going on in his mind and how he's perceiving the world and yeah i, I found it uh, gripping but i guess mainly because i can relate to the anxiety parts of it so i'd say it's probably more stressful rather than outright horrific but where you draw the line and what's horror and what's stress is probably the question there Oh yeah, good point. This is a nice moment to uh,
0: (laughs) bring up that uh, we coined a new term for a a genre most people have not heard of. The stressor. A replacement of uh, the horror film where it's all about stress rather than rights. (laughs) So uh, maybe this indeed belongs in the new genre of the stressor. But you mentioned that constant fear that uh, Bo lives in, and that's probably one of the most interesting uh, parts of the film because the whole film is, in a lot of ways, just about that fear. So uh, perhaps uh, a good question to start with as we dive into that part of the film is, uh, what do you think Bo is so afraid of? Everything. That was a short, sharp uh, answer. Uh, Does anyone disagree? I think Saul has a a valid point there. He
1: is afraid of everything, but perhaps it's more interesting to dive into where those fears stem from. And as we've mentioned previously, it relates to his relationship with his mother and growing up and the uh, unusual things that he's been told about his own bloodline, which again is a, a nice nod to... Um, as his previous work in hereditary he constantly likes to look at family trauma, inherited illnesses etc, things like that and in that way in a sense you can link all of his films together thematically but I, I think Bo being afraid of everything whether that's due to his upbringing or whether it's due to the uh, new drugs that's his uh, therapist prescribes him or a combination of both. It's difficult to tell uh, which psychotic incidents are are, are due to each of those. To be honest, it's probably just a a combination of both. But it really is fascinating to see all of these things, all these events that happen in the film, how much of them are just in Bo's head. And I think you could have a, a field day writing a dissertation or a thesis on that kind of thing because there is a lot to unpack in there
3: I mean you just brought up you know the idea that it was all most of the fear was in Bo's head I think I don't know what anyone else felt but for the first part I still can't decide if you know all the freaks all the New York freaks are out in the street whether they were actually real or sort of imagined I never really quite settled on that I don't know if anyone else just thought one way or the other
2: I think all the people really are out there in the street, but I don't think they're as bad as he imagines them to be. So my interpretation of the film, which I don't think spoils anything, is that pretty much everything we see from a very early point of the film is all in his mind and him imagining the worst possibilities. And look, I was probably trying to be a bit funny when I did say everything as a one-word response before, But it's mainly, I guess, he's afraid of any sort of new situation. Anything which is going to, like, have something different in his routine. So I guess he's a very routine person. And anything that's sort of, like, going to break that cycle, that's an anxiety point. And I don't know if he even relates to his mum that much. The film opens with him inside the womb. And from the very moment he's inside the womb, he is completely stressed out. And I don't know if any of you guys saw the film theatrically. Um, I did actually see it in cinemas, which is quite a because in the long film podcast, I said that I was not going to see it in cinemas. But anyway, uh, but yeah, when I was just watching that first sequence in the cinema, you got the uh, walls of the cinema actually vibrating. That's how intense the sound is when he's in the womb at the start of the film. So I guess for me, Maybe it's a rentary thing, I guess, to go back to Asta's first film, maybe, but I don't know how much of it's his mother's influence or maybe just the way that his brain operates, that he is just constantly reacting in the worst case possible scenario way to everything going on.
0: To to build on what Jonathan was saying earlier and, and what Saul was saying as well, I mean, I, I think the film lives in a very ambiguous reality where we're, where we're not sure if what we are seeing is uh, both just heightened experience of the world, or if it's all just a dream. And uh, I'm kind of leaning towards all of this just being one big nightmare, be that the literal nightmare that Bo is uh, dreaming up, or just that it is in this (laughs) nightmarish world uh, where uh, what's real and what's not doesn't really exist in the <laughs> in the same way so i would say that either this is some horrified Bob has or the film's reality is so heightened that that everything is real but it's not real at the same time and logic doesn't really apply to the way we're used to i would just like to link back to what sol
1: said about the opening of the film because i also found that incredibly effective when bo is in the womb it's a really nice opening sequence and the more I think about it, I think I might have perhaps enjoyed the film more if it was just the first segment, because the opening was incredible and the ending of the first segment really worked for me. It was very strong when Bo is mistaken for someone that he's not. And again, that is one of the film's uh, strongest comic moments that's also quite horrifying and just represents his... Fears of the unknown and, and what is happening to him. So yeah, I, I just I know I keep saying it, but the first segment for me was, was incredible. Um, it's just a shame that the others didn't quite live up to that.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think the, if the first segment was expanded and uh, the mother was just someone on the phone on the sidelines, that could have been a great film in uh, in its own right. That just um, dived into this kind of city life paranoia of of just everything around them the the crime and disparity of the city and the horror of you know people with anxiety living there i think that it could have worked really well though i do think that we talked about earlier with what i talked about earlier at least with this red line throughout from the opening uh, with the boy coming out of his womb to the end he's always very connected with his mother and it's his relationship with his mother his relationship with family that we see through flashbacks that we see through Uh, through interactions throughout the the film, that kind of, I I suppose, made Bo what what he is today. I mean, I I suppose it's like an armchair psychologist uh, sense too, like it's all about his mother, it's, uh, all of the trauma he has is because of his mother. (laughs) But uh, it's explored in a really interesting and visceral way. And uh, it's, It's a very fascinating and exciting way of doing it, that it just goes completely bonkers. So uh, I'm very happy it took the path it did. Uh, If anything, the middle sections kind of leave that a bit, but I mean, it's still all interconnected, because it's consistently just trying to find his way home. But moving from just how the fear manifests in itself, Uh, What do you think the film wants to actually explore with this fear? Uh, Do you agree with me that it's all about his mother?
3: Yeah, I think that was an interesting point, actually, about him, sort of, um, the whole film is his attempts to come back home. I never really thought about it that way, because it is true, he sort of, the film initially starts off with him, you know, being born, and then kind of, slowly he's reverting his way all the way back to his mother after sort of some initial independence. Um, Yeah, I think it... It's certainly, I think the idea is, I would say, is that it all comes from his mother, his fear around everything. And I think actually uh, sex in particular, which I think contributes to one of the funniest scenes uh, towards the end.
2: I don't really see the film as being primarily about his mother. I mean, obviously she's a large influence in his life, but I just see him as a very nervous anxiety-ridden individual which uh, I can relate to myself and I think it's just about the way that he processes the world whenever he goes out he always looks at what the worst case scenario can be uh, for me I sort of do that myself whether I try and do that more as a way to prepare myself so I try and look at what possibilities can happen that way I'm prepared for things when they do come up but uh, for me it's just more of a reflection of anxiety on film that is specifically about the relationship between one man and his mother
1: i think a lot of it has to do with the the past trauma that he's maybe tried to bury as well in the the dark recesses of his mind you've got some really active scenes where we see the flashbacks of him as a a young child in the the bathtub and his mother lurking just out of view and there's some quite ominous scenes We, we flashback to this a a few times and it's never quite clear what Astra is intending until later on in the film some of those scenes are are quite effective and and particularly chilling as well and I would also just like to mention that I agree with Jonathan that the sex scenes are absolutely fantastic because they are just hilarious and yeah (laughs) that was a that was another moment where I was either laughing or chuckling inside to myself uh, during the uh, the sex sequence towards the end of the film.
0: And building on that, though, and getting back to uh, to my question, um, so with all of this fear that Bo is uh, experiencing, and Aster just diving into that fear, I mean, what what do you think Aster really wants to explore w- with the fear he's putting on screen?
2: I think what Aster most wants to explore is how. Consuming anxiety can be, and how I guess having a lot of anxiety and paranoia can severely impact on your perception of the world. Because I guess for me, a lot of it is about perception, and there is a bit of anxiety in his previous films, or I guess maybe a lot of anxiety in his previous films. So for me, it's probably the film which is most about anxiety, and probably maybe even the most accurate reflection of what it is like to live with anxiety. Uh, oh, and so there was, there was an interesting quote by Astor himself
0: when he was describing the film um, before it was released, where he called it a Jewish Lord of the Rings, but with the call of, you know, uh, both character going back to his uh, mother's house rather than, you know, <laughs> uh, dropping the ring in a volcano. Um, what, what, what do you uh, say about that description?
2: I don't really understand the Lord of the Rings parallel, although it has been ages since I've watched the movies. Um, not since I guess 2003 when the third one came out, and I've, it's been 20 years. Well, wow, but I've still got no desire to revisit them, so I don't get that connection there. But there is obviously a lot of Jewish um, anxiety in there, and just different things which are quite interesting, which I don't know if non-Jewish viewers will pick up on. Things like the mothers body uh having to having to wait so long for it to be buried because in jewish culture if somebody passes away you actually have to have somebody sit with the body for however long it takes before they're buried and it's usually actually actually customary for them to be buried as soon as possible so in a deeply religious communities if somebody passes away in the morning their funeral will be in the afternoon on that day so uh, yeah, it's, it's quite a big thing. And I know when my father passed away, we had to wait, I think three days or whatever for the funeral, and that was considered shocking. And I don't know if that quite comes out to non-Jewish viewers if they'll sort of pick up on that. but with the person who's constantly on the phone to him, ask him to come in, ask how much a shame it is, that actually is like a very real thing that if you're postponing a funeral, especially with the religious people involved, you have to do the ceremony and everything. It's considered to be you know, very poor, poor form. So that part of it was, I think, accurately ref- reflected. But I'm not sure about the Lord of the Rings thing. That's um, entirely lost to me. I'm not really interested in re-watching the Jackson. <laughs> yeah, fair talk. enough.
0: I, I think I think you was just referring to like, the long uh, journey itself rather than any overt
2: comparisons. Oh, right. Well, yeah, I guess it's a long journey, but it's not as boring a journey as the uh, Lord of the Rings films are. <laughs> oh, wow.
0: Okay, maybe you should do a Lord of the Rings podcast.
2: <laughs> oh, well, look, like I said, it's been 20 years, but for my memory, um, not so much the second one cause I had a bit of Gollum in it. But the first or the third one were just like a whole lot of mindless action, and I'm not a big fan of mindless action at the best of times. So for me, the films were uh, clear misses. So uh, I, I don't know if Bo's afraid is going to make me interested in rewatching it. it. It would be interesting if it was actually Asta's biggest influence, and maybe I should rewatch it.
1: <laughs> it's an interesting quote that you bring up, Chris. I would love to be in that meeting when Asta was pitching the film as a Jewish Lord of the Rings, but he's trying to reach his mum's house. I can't imagine that people <laughs> would have been like, "Oh yeah, we'll uh, we'll snap this up." <laughs> But um, it, it is an interesting point that Sol brings up about the, um, the mother's funeral and the fact that Bo is constantly getting these phone calls, like, you need to return home so that we can proceed with the funeral. And that just elevates his anxieties even more because he is trying to leave his home. And then in the second segment, he's trying to escape and, and make his way back home. But he's constantly coming up against other things that play on other fears that just, you know, exacerbate his, his situation. And he is he is desperate to, to get home. You can sense that. But he's just coming up against so many obstacles, whether real or imagined, that it just makes it into such a long and arduous journey for him.
3: I, th- I think there's also... Um... In addition to the anxiety, there's also a fair bit of guilt that is sort of put upon Beau uh, throughout the film, really, uh, but especially with regards to the not attending the mother's funeral. And I think it's interesting because that's sort of contrasted a bit with um, the family that sort of adopts him, who are uh, pretty explicitly Christian, it's shown. They sort of have you know, crucifixes all over the house, who are the, really the only people who accept him um, throughout the film, really. I think at one point the mum sort of says, you, know, you need to stop feeling so guilty. So I think there's definitely a bit of focus on guilt as well in there
2: i'm not sure if i necessarily agree with the family accepting him i think the mother definitely and i don't know if we're going to talk about that section of the film in a little bit more depth but the uh, daughter very much resents him and the father seems to maybe have these ulterior motives so The whole thing is just very strange, and I guess that in itself. um, You know, Jonathan said it was his favourite stretch of the film, and I can easily see why, because it's one of the uh, weirdest and most interesting, especially with the fast-forwarding of time and everything, and stop incriminating yourself and different messages and whatever being dropped. So for me, I guess that was probably where I was most intrigued by what was going on. It might have not maybe engrossed me as much as the first part of the film, but definitely the second part of the film was interesting. I'm just not sure if they're really that accepting of him, because I guess other than the mother, I did feel that uh, the other characters had ulterior motives with him. Although, what? We're not quite sure. Yeah, I mean, all of them seem to have a bit of an ulterior
0: motive, where they're kind of just, like, just without any kind of warning, just uh, replacing their deceased son with him, essentially. But you don't know where that's going, you don't know what's happening. And uh, in a way, I actually thought it was the segment that was the closest to uh, midsummer because then there you also have, you know, a visitor coming into a family, if you will, of all smiles. But there's these creepy happenings on the sidelines and uh, all of these things that seems to like you can't really leave, you can't really do do certain things, and uh, you're just waiting for something uh, to go very, very wrong. So I, I thought that part of it, and this, this kind of heightened uh, pleasantness and happiness that, that you know, the, the mother and father characters kind of express, made it a very unnerving, and like this, this v- very bright, creepy, airy uh, scenario that, that I thought Aster uh, pulled off really well. I, I guess it's also playing to one of his uh, strengths. I would agree with that assessment, Chris. I think the
1: bright visual style of the the second segment does kind of have parallels with with midsummer there. you know it, it seems inviting almost on the surface, but you know deep down underneath there's some you know troubling stuff going on and then the the horror elements are quite visual in that sequence. I thought particularly when the young daughter decides to gorge herself on the kind of paint that was particularly effective. And that was perhaps one of my uh,
0: favorite moments of the film. And uh, that was also the segment which had one of the, the biggest surprise uh, appearances of an actor for me, which is uh, Denis uh, Menochet, the French uh, actor who's just like suddenly there as an American warbat who doesn't uh, really speak. <laughs> I know he was in uh, one of your favorite films from uh, last year, Tom, uh, The Beasts. And he was also, you know, just starring in uh, the remake uh, of uh, uh, Peter von Kant. We uh, Peter von Kant him in the lead. So it was just really fascinating to just see him just show up there. That was a big surprise. And he's also just one of the scarier uh, characters in the film.
1: Likewise, I was really surprised to, to see him in the film and, and very happy. I think he's at his best when he's kind of like a, a hulking menace. And he plays that role really well. He's very intimidating. And it is also quite funny as well, seeing his interactions with his surrogate family and how they, they care for him. He's got an interesting backstory. Um so, he, yeah, he is a great addition to that segment.
0: And I noticed that they haven't really talked that much about the, the actors either. So I, I guess it makes sense to especially focusing on uh, Joaquin Phoenix, because as we said earlier, this was in many ways you know, promoted as uh, Jacqueline Phoenix film uh, this transformational role um, how well do you think he managed to pull off this transformational role and just how uh, drawn in were you
3: by his performance uh, yeah I think it's um, it's like an interesting performance for like such a big name actor and like recently Oscar winning actor I suppose to take on because it's it's a very very passive role I mean he doesn't really actually um have that many lines of dialogue throughout so it, He's really, um, yeah, he's more like an observer, almost like sort of like Apocalypse Now, kind of just observing all the craziness that's happening around him, kind of main character. I think he does play it off very well. And I think it plays on, um, I think I've always found Joaquin Phoenix being an actor with kind of odd speech patterns, quite sort of mumbly and distant. And I feel like there's a good use of that, I'd say.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was definitely a very odd role for him to take on, but I think he comes out of it really well. His performance is great and as you said, Jonathan, he he doesn't have too much dialogue, but that which he does have he he delivers well. But a lot of it is down to his facial expressions. And he's got a really good way of of conveying the fear and the anxiety and the emotions that Bo is going through. A lot of the time you know, his expressions gives you all the information that that you need of how he's handling or reacting to the situation. And I think it is perhaps up there with some of his best performances, but I don't think it's the kind of film that is likely to, likely for him to receive any accolades
2: for because of the, the style of film that it is. I think it was a very brave performance because he's portraying somebody who Doesn't really look all that great. So it's not really a flattering sort of uh, role. If you compare that to Johnny Cash, I know that's going back a decade and a half ago now. But it's a very different sort of performance. And um, also he has these full nude scenes in there with or without prosthetic genitals. I don't know, there's some debate about that on the letterbox. I wasn't paying that close attention to it, but we do see a bit of what's going on down there. So I guess it's a bit of a brave role to take on for that point of view, but I guess it's maybe not unexpected for Phoenix because his performances have been in very much choice projects. I mean, for somebody who's been an Oscar nominee all the way back since Gladiator, uh, the nominations came out in 2001, he's been very selective with his roles and just looking through his filmography, there's very few duds in there. And most of them are films that he's done where he's been working with very acclaimed and very celebrated directors. So I think he's somebody like Leonardo DiCaprio would be another one who weighs up all the job offers he gets very carefully and he chooses ones where he thinks it's going to be a really great film or a really striking performance. So I'm not surprised he's taken it out. He is that sort of daring actor. And I think, yeah, if you had a chance to work with Ari Aster, I guess, you know, why, why would you pass that up? In terms of accolades, I actually would be expecting unless less, I don't know, I mean, it's hard to predict at the moment. Unless things like really wrap up in the category, I think the film, if it gets promoted as a comedy, is has got a chance to get a Golden Globe nomination for Best Actor in a Comedy. I don't know if it would actually get any other acclaim beyond that because, like we said before, it's a bit of a divisive film. It hasn't really won everybody over. But it's a bit hard to say with Astor's films because everybody was saying Tony Collette was going to get a nomination for Hereditary and, of course, that never happened. But then Bo is Afraid is more comedy than horror. So I don't know if it's going to balance its favour or not. But I'd be very interested to see how many top lists it gets on and how many top lists his performance gets on at the end of the year. Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, I noticed that
0: uh, he was already nominated for uh, Best Actor at the Hollywood Critics Association Midseason season Awards, which I, I haven't really heard of before. Apollo. I just uh, clicked on what awards the film has uh, gotten on uh, IODB. <laughs> but I, I can see uh, Phoenix uh, getting some awards for this. If anything, the biggest opponent to this is not really the film. And uh, I think it's actually himself, because he's also starring in uh, Napoleon. And based on how well people think his performance is in that one, he, he that might be the one he ends up getting nominated for. Uh, so so let's see. I have not seen that film. It's not released yet at the time of this episode. is being recorded, I believe. So uh, that will be interesting to see just how those two uh, performances uh, clash towards each other on the award shows. If that was not the case, I think he would actually at least have gotten some Nominations, possibly even a uh, Oscar nomination, but it, like you said, it is a divisive film. I, I do think this is one of those films that has a good chance of becoming one of those big cult classics uh, down the road, ending up on a lot of critic lists, maybe getting onto the sight and sound list in uh, 20 years. Who knows? I think that even earlier, I think that's one of those things that may happen because as we talked about, this is a very divisive film, and it's a film that some people really seem to love. So I, I can see it doing well there. Uh, but yeah, we just have to wait and see. Were there any other performances in the film as without you? Although he
1: wasn't in the film for all that much, I was quite impressed with the young lad who played the younger version of Bo, and that's Armin Nahapetian. I think he has got a eerily similar look to a keen phoenix and he did manage to capture the same kind of anxiety induced persona that phoenix did quite well in a a young boy you know who's kind of like aloof and uncertain but he hadn't quite been ground down by life at that point so there was still some you know, there was still some positivity coming from him, a, a bit of confidence he was able to, to, to speak to a, a young girl and, and befriend her during a holiday. And I found that segment quite enjoyable. It almost, if it wasn't for the dark undertones, it almost felt like a bit of a, a Wes Anderson vibe going through that uh, that holiday scene when he was a young boy. <laughs> I can see that. Uh, I, yeah, but then obviously there's things that completely unhinge that, like the, uh, when they find something unnerving in the, in the swimming pool. But um, yeah, I, I thought the young boy's performance was, was quite impressive and I can imagine that he may be a face that starts cropping up in, in more uh, larger pictures
0: in the future. And talking about his face and his uh, similarities to uh, Phoenix, I mean, he actually had to come out and uh, reveal that he was not CGI because a lot of people thought he was a DH aged Phoenix. That's <laughs> that's really uh, really amazing. Just how that kind of just spun out of control.
1: I didn't know that, but that is obviously great work on the casting team. <laughs> Getting those kind of comments from the public—that's great.
3: Uh, yeah, when I first saw the poster, I did think that's what they did. When I saw the film, I, f- I realised it was actually a real person's
2: face. But
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have to admit that when I saw the trailer, I was wondering about that too.
2: On the performances, I'll just also give a quick shout-out to Julia Antonelli, who plays the young girl who he meets in the flashbacks. I thought she was really vibrant and spunky and gave a different air to the film. In terms of other performances, the only one that really stood out to me was Nathan Lane, because for whatever reason, I wasn't aware or would blocked out of my mind that it was in the film when I went down to see it. And because he's playing such a strange character, we are not quite sure what his true motivations are. I thought it was an interesting performance, but not really an award-worthy performance. Yeah, I,
0: I think Nathan Lane just nailed the atmosphere that the segment was going for, and he played the father's. So- so so well in in that uh, in that sequence with the family that kind of adopts phoenix <laughs> a nerve this is unnervingly jovial character that you know all, you always suspect has uh, ulterior motives just really well done and i think you just you know uh, Pat patty lapune uh, as well who uh, plays the older version of his uh, mother because we see her both as a younger woman and as a uh, Uh, an older woman. I thought she (laughs) really nailed this kind of uh, almost psychological uh, terror and fear and just like the visualization of all of uh, Bo's uh, fears of disappointing his mother, what she might be thinking of him. Stellar performance. She was
3: very scary. Uh, This is just a small point, but did anyone notice the Bill Hader cameo at any point? (laughs)
0: I, I didn't, I didn't. I, I was like, I, I saw uh, the, like the scene where he's kind of hiding his face and I'm like, oh, he looks really familiar. <laughs> like that, That's actually probably one of the funniest portions of the film as well. <laughs> but no, I, I didn't realize it was him until I saw the cast list. And the film also sports a very memorable uh, cameo by Richard Kind. So there's there's a lot of really fun uh, stuff coming up. And Parker Posty shows up in the film. Stephen McKinley Henderson shows up in the film. So there's there's a lot of these uh, interesting uh, smaller roles that are uh, played very, very well. I mean, uh, Amy Ryan as uh, the mother character in that second segment we keep returning to. Two, she was also. pulling that off quite well so a a lot of the pieces are coming together now we will have a spoiler section at the end of this uh, episode where we dive into the ending and we dive into a lot of the things the film actively does uh, down the road but before that for the listeners who have not seen the film I thought it was just interesting to talk about the impact that we think Bo is afraid may have on the industry uh, if any I and mean, do you think that the film will help American authors, in particular, to get these kinds of large, personal, uh, over very ambitious, perhaps even overly ambitious uh, films made? Or, or is it, like I mentioned in the <laughs> in the intro, going to be like a modern *Heaven's Gate* in a way?
3: Yeah, I think if it does have an impact, it'll probably more along the Heaven's Gate lines, um, especially since it's not in a league of its own because there was um, also Babylon released, which I think probably did even worse. <laughs> so I think it, um, at least in terms of um, three-hour-long horror surrealist epics, it might put a dampener on those. <laughs> uh,
2: I said as a joke in the chat that uh, films like Bowers of Fred will end up bankrupting A24, but I don't think that's really going to be in the case. I would say that if the film was maybe better received overall, I mean, I think it has been quite well received, but it hasn't been as well received as his previous features. I think if it was as well received as asked as two other films, I think there would have been more pathway for longer epics like this to get made within the horror genre. I, I'm not sure how much there would be based on the fact that it hasn't got the same acclaimers as other films. But it's one of those movies that I think is going to form a little bit of a cult following. I think when people go back and rewatch it, which I haven't done myself yet, and pick up on clues along the way, I think it will pick up a little bit of a fan base. So I don't know if we've seen other directors doing things like this before, but it is really interesting when directors have the ability to be as creative with a relatively mainstream film like this.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with Sol. It's encouraging to see directors... Being able to have the the funds behind them to tackle such ambitious and uh, exciting projects, and it is a shame that the film has underperformed at at the box office. But I do feel that it is one with potential cult classic that the people who loved it really love it, and as you said, Chris, I think over the years that people's perceptions of it may shift, and you know, it it may be looked upon more positively as people get time to revisit it and and warm to it and in terms of how it may impact the the film industry I, I i don't know if it is a positive thing because you know someone's been given free reign to do what they want with this ambitious project and it hasn't been a financial success so it made it other studios from from taking similar risks but at the same time a film of this magnitude and you know, a film that is so out there may inspire other creatives out there to want to branch out and do something with you know their own indus- their own careers in the in the film industry. So in that that respect it, it could be a-, a positive thing. It's just the financial side of things that sadly didn't do too well for this film.
0: Yeah, I just looked at the numbers and I didn't realize it was as big of a box office uh, bomb as it was. I mean, I had I, I heard that it hadn't performed that well, but its budget was $35 million. And uh, um, worldwide, it has only made a little bit over $11 million so far, uh, with most of that coming from the US and Canada. So it just didn't even do... Like, particularly well at all in Europe or, or the rest of the world, so that's almost shocking given the star power it has. Um, I wonder, I wonder what 824 is thinking about this and whether or not this will impact anything going forward. I mean, I can see that it's uh, while it opened like in UK, for instance, back in May, I can see that it's actually still hasn't opened in Argentina, for instance, and it uh, had some June and July uh, launches as well, so maybe it'll make a bit more. Uh, there and then obviously you have other revenue streams later on but yeah that's not a very good sign and maybe a yeah, soft joke that it could bankrupt the uh, 824 or rather that a string of films like this could uh, bankrupt twenty four is possible it, this is the power of you know the mid-budget film i guess that you can afford more failures and take more risks but yeah, let, let's see if this dissuades A24 from potentially doing this kind of film in the future. I, I hope that's not the case, but going by the numbers that is, <laughs> that is sadly possible. You can also kind of
1: imagine the, the people at A24 going to Astra and being like, for your next project we need something like Hereditary or Midsummer again. Which might not be a bad thing from my perspective, but yeah, exactly. you know, <laughs> it would be a shame if he, you know, if he has to change his future projects based on the, the performance of Bo is Afraid, because he is a, a great director.
0: Mm, I wouldn't be surprised. He has always talking in the chat that he might have to be <laughs> hereditary too now, which I wouldn't honestly be surprised if he, if he ended up doing, or if someone ended up doing. <laughs> um, I, I think that there's two paths there, really. It's either working with significantly lower budgets, if he wants to do something like this in the future, or going back to something a little bit safer for him. Um, but uh, is, is that what you want to happen? I mean, uh, what do you want Aster and A24's response uh, to be to this film? I would like for them to still
1: have faith and, uh, and confidence in, in Aster, you know, and, and trust him with his projects. Not everything is going to connect well with the, the general public, but he has proven himself to be a, a director with, you know, a, a great skill set And it is always nice for directors to try different things as much as I would love for him to just churn out horror film after horror film. I think any film he's going to make is going to have some element of nightmarish horror themes in there. So I would love to see him take on more uh, unusual projects. But conversely, I'd also be equally happy if he did return to his more conventional horror roots for his next picture.
0: Yeah, let's just not hope he ends up like, uh, say, uh, <laughs> Michael Camino or uh, Francis Ford Coppola after their big uh, financial flops at the end of the 80s and he ends up doing, you know, random studio films just to
2: get money. So, my hope would be that A24 wouldn't look so closely at the box office numbers and hopefully looks more at maybe the letterbox reviews and the general perception out there and the positive comments. And Maybe keep encouraging Aster to do things that are a bit different. Maybe next time put a producer's cut in place and say, like with midsummer, we'll release a two-hour one in theaters, and you could do the three-hour one as a director's cut. So maybe put that in as provision in there. But I think they'll be doing the film world a disservice if they try to cut Aster off at the moment, because from my point of view, it's his strongest and most mature film to date. And I'd love to see him do more anxiety ridden surreal films like this, rather than go back to remaking the Wickman. man. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I, I couldn't help the Midsummer. Um <laughs> Yeah. Look, uh, we'll, we'll see what comes of it, but I'm hoping he'll just keep progressing from here.
0: Yeah. I, I hope so too. And, um, and yeah, I hope that, uh, I mean, I, I like to be talked about earlier. I mean, I, I prefer these more surreal uh, mind trips to uh, horror in general. So uh, this is the path I want to see him on. Um, though I do also want to see him financially successful and be able to make films because he is a really interesting director, no matter what he handles. So uh, I'm open to him taking whichever paths he, he uh, wants, but I hope to see something similar to Beau, and perhaps something a little bit more uh, more concise next time, and perhaps he can just go in with a slightly lower budget. I mean, it doesn't have to be three hours every time he can make, you know, an 80-90 minute film and still really deliver on the trippiness. Uh, Others really have more than proved that. So let, let's see what he ends up doing. Um, we, we're going to recommend some films that fans of the film should see at the end of this episode. And we're also going to recommend some similar films that the haters of this film might want to seek out anyways so that deliver a similar kind of nightmarish uh, experiences. But that's more for people who have seen the film. So I think this might be a really good point to just dive into uh, our spoiler section. We'll put up a quick spoiler warning here.
2: Spoiler warning.
0: And... I'm just going to give you guys completely free reign to talk about whatever you want, whatever spoilers you want from the entire film. I, at, the, at the end of that, we can dive into the ending specifically, what we think it means. But yeah, just spoil everything you want to and how we felt about it. Okay, so I really want to know
1: what Asta was taking when he conjured up the idea of a giant penis monster being in a loft. Like, <laughs> what what was going on there? It was... Grotesque imagery, very nightmarish, almost kind of at lynchy in a way, you know, this horrible creature trapped away. But yeah, that was, for my money, the strangest moment in the film. Not sure if it particularly worked that well, but... It certainly provoked a reaction from me. What did you guys think of that scene?
3: Yeah,
0: that was the most off awesome moment in the entire film. The monster looks absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> and you know, he whispers, Bo, don't be afraid. <laughs> it's, it's just a bit, it's like almost like a cutaway gag, because then you also have uh, Jeeves come storming in there with a knife and he ends up uh, hacking each other apart which is just utterly uh, insane as well. I mean, I I think it's the moment where probably the film's most heightened, ridiculous moment. Uh, It fits with the more overt comedy of it all. Um, But no, it was not one of the highlights for me
2: to put it like that. Yeah, the monster in the attic was probably my least favorite part of the film. Not that the concept wasn't interesting, but it did seem a bit disconnected to everything else in the film. And that's sort of what I hinted at earlier on, where I said, as the film progressed, parts of it just seemed to be quite random, like different ideas thrown together because they seemed interesting on paper. So I guess that was for me, that was one of the things where it didn't quite gel for me as much as I would hope to for the film to be an instant favorite.
0: An interesting thing is that this moment was kind of hinted throughout the film too. You have these moments where he's wondering, you have these moments where he's wondering about his father and, uh, you have these moments where, you know, there's something secret going on upstairs, et cetera. So you have, like, this is something else. It wasn't like, like, I mean, I called it a cutaway and it kind of felt like that, but this was something that Alster actively planned for, which uh, made it even a like a bit older, even. I mean, it fits my theory a little bit that uh, the film is just all about his kind of toxic relationship to his mother and how his mother has, you know, kind of made him into who he is. Because at that point, I mean, his mother, we know she's not dead. She's there. She's, uh, you know, putting him through this extended guilt trip and he finally finds his father and it's just the penis and balls. I mean, it, it's a bit like this uh, you know, this idea that you know, his father was just a sperm donor kind of thing and while well, she's this all-encompassing uh, deity almost and uh, it fits the team of teams of the film at least the way I see the themes of the film but uh, yeah, like, like so, it was probably one of my least favourite moments as well
3: uh, Yeah, I'd, com- I'd pretty much completely agree with that um, especially because I also like you kind of saw that as the main thrust of the of the film and I think the revelation of the loft penis monster—I think as someone who saw it that way—it was a bit too, I don't know, big and literal, and it just didn't quite work for me. Especially like the big reveal, you know, that it's kind of been building to with all these flashbacks. It just a bit, a bit of a sideways thing, I
2: guess. Speaking of the big reveal that was leading up to, I was cheering for a large part of the film where they had a twin brother or something who got locked away in the attic so you've got that scene in the bathtub and it's sort of like there's a second boy there or sort of like somebody's looking on that's what's happening so i'd wonder if he had a twin brother who got separated something like um i don't want to spoil but there's been a couple of horror films that have been sort of made about that the idea of the uh, good twin and the uh, bad twin So, uh, yeah, I thought that's what it might have been leading up to, and what we got to is just completely off it, but then I guess it fits my own theory that that everything in the film is just him imagining the worst possible um, scenario, and I guess having this giant penis monster in there is the uh, worst thing that could possibly be there in the attic. Yeah,
0: I mean, he had a twin brother, too. I mean, it is that uh, skeleton-like man that's kind of like a clinking, uh, clinking a cup, uh, looking horrible, uh, which, which wasn't really focused on at all. It was just like a quick shot of this person and then suddenly we pan to the penis.
1: I mean, it's a real reflection of his anxieties around sex as well, basically due to his mother potentially Poisoning his mind from a relatively young age because he believes that the first time he has sex will be the time when he dies. And I think that's quite an interesting concept put into the film. Um, and you can see throughout how that has affected Bo quite uh, traumatically. And when we get to that sex scene, there's obviously some expectations about... What is going to happen? And they are completely flipped in the most comical way. And I found that rather amusing.
3: Yeah, and it's like, I really like that bit as well. And it's kind of, it's kind of shown in a very funny way because, you know, you see him, it sort of shows the shot of him and he's sort of reacting to still being alive and he's all, he's incredibly euphoric and it's all amazing. But you can still see just on the side, like the outline of this very still looking woman and you can kind of see where it's going to go. I mean, I
1: suppose we're in spoiler territory now, aren't we? <laughs> so, so we can discuss it openly. Yeah, you don't but have yeah, to hide just, anything
0: at all.
1: <laughs> just the fact that, you know, she completely stiffens, like stiff as a board, her whole body just becomes rigid when it turns out that it's actually the female who, who dies during sex, um, not Beau. And just the fact that she's kind of like cast aside and then throughout the rest of the scene when we're in the bedroom, you can just see this still body on the floor in a. Most uh, awkward position, kind of as if it's like a, a tailor's dummy just bent into a strange position on the floor, and just having that in the background throughout the scene was was really funny. I enjoyed that a lot.
0: With all this complete naked silence at Tom saying he enjoyed the nude corpse. Well done, Tom. <laughs> I
1: didn't think about it like that, but yeah, that's one way of putting that. Thanks very much, Chris.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) Uh, And with that, though, I think we might have spoiled what we want to spoil, uh, except the very ending itself. Now, obviously, we know now that Bo's mother is uh, alive, at least in his mind, at least in this dreamscape. We you know that the, the psychologist has been recording all of uh, uh, his sessions, and his father has been listening to him talk about the, the way <laughs> she has scarred him, essentially, and uh, the way he kind of feels about the relationship. And these tapes are playing. He tries to strangle her. He throws her into a glass table, and he runs out, escapes in a boat. And then suddenly, as the boat kind of goes into this cave, lights come out. And there's this huge audience around him. Uh, Richard Kind returns as lawyer. He's the person who was calling him and shaming him earlier. Uh, his mother is there, and they start going through kind of scenes from his life. Um, to determine how bad a son he was and what a bad person he was. And he has this lawyer who's trying to, you know, defend him, you know, but you never really even see a close up of the lawyers. You see Richard Kind doing these grand speeches, and then from a this large distance, you just hear uh, the lawyer of both screaming, He was afraid! Uh, which also ends with the people just throwing the lawyer off the cliff killing him Uh, and then the boat that uh, Bo is on capsizes him stuck to it, he gets flipped around He seemingly drowns and the mother just calls out, my baby, my baby, kind of going back to the opener where it comes from the womb as well. Uh, Kind of completing this circle, completing this nightmarish dream. And maybe this wet death is the womb as well, who knows. Um, I would just love to hear your reactions to that ending, your reactions to that scene, uh, and what you think it all means, if uh, anything at all.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think I actually did really like that scene. And I did. I found all the stuff with um, Bo's defence lawyer uh, very funny, especially since you could barely even hear the sort of case he's trying to make. Because <laughs> he's like, he's like an ant in this massive stadium. And yeah, he does eventually get pushed off. I think in terms of the meaning, I think, you know, I would just say, I think the idea is that Bo will just never escape his mother. It was the idea I took from it. And um, yeah, basically, he is cursed to live under his mother's thumb more or less, for the rest of his life.
1: <laughs> I think that's a nice way of, of putting it. Jonathan is just forever under his mother's shadow and there's there's no escaping that. I'll be honest here, though. When we did get to the ending sequence, I had kind of um, zoned out somewhat of the film because I, th- I don't know if it was just my general disappointment that Bo's Afraid was not in the film I was hoping for. And... I was almost kind of like waiting for it to end. I know that sounds really sad, but I was just like, "Oh, it hasn't really done much for me now." So, it didn't really have much of an impact on me. The ending, perhaps when I revisit the film, knowing what to expect, I might get more out of it. But I did enjoy the the setting for the final scene. You know, just this grand kind of auditorium with everyone just watching there and you know, judging him. And it felt like Asta was making a bit of a social commentary on the the world today. You know, as many people just living as voyeurs with all this reality TV, watching the downfall of people, but not um, intervening to, to help them out. I don't know if anyone else took that from it, but that was a kind of like sweeping social statement I thought you could take out of that final scene.
2: The final scene to me was really just the confirmation that what we were seeing was really just inside his head. To the point where this is his anxiety is at its absolute worst. He's being judged by everybody around him. And, yeah, it's probably him at his most insecure, not just being afraid of going outside, but also being afraid of what other people think of him. I have to admit, I didn't think of the reality TV connotation, but it is quite interesting. But, yeah, for me, it was just him being anxious about how he'll be thought of, and I guess the film does pretty much end with his demise. I'm not quite sure if I'd really say it's about him being able to not escape from his mum, although I know other people have got different readings of the film to me. It's probably just I sort of took it as a way that he thinks he's going to be judged after death. He's so not just worried about... His safety while he's alive, but he's also now worried about how he's going to be thought of once he does pass away.
0: Yeah, and he's judged for all his fear and all his inactivity, which is probably one of those things he fears. I mean, he even fears his own activity and his own fear. And my interpretation is a bit closer to Jonathan's in that it just uh, showcases how. Uh, You know, he can never really break this cycle of being under his uh, mother's thumb and influence. But uh, but yeah, and no, I didn't actually think of this critique of reality theory that you brought up, Tom. I think that's a really interesting take as well. And I think it fits the scene, at least to a point.
3: Yeah, and it also fits in well. There's um, a point at the very start where sort of Beau is walking through the city and there's someone jumping off the top of a building and everyone's just sort of watching and laughing. I think quite a few people are recording him on his on the phones. I think, yeah, it just fits in like a nice little sort of mirror image with that.
1: That's right. I'd completely forgotten about that scene at the start as well. So thanks for bringing that up, Jonathan. It does marry up really well with the the point that I was trying to make there. And it just shows how I was afraid is a film that is kind of like bursting with ideas. Not all of them necessarily land, but those that do provide a lot of food for thought. And, you know, I do feel like it is a film I will rewatch at some point because of how much I love Hereditary and Midsummer. You know, perhaps in a few years' time, we'll come back to it with fresh eyes and get something a bit more positive out of it on a, on a second viewing.
0: Yeah, I think you, you might. I mean, like you mentioned, Tom, I mean, a lot of your reaction to the film was based on what you expected it to be. So going and knowing what it is, I mean, it might change a lot. And on that note, I mean, I, I suppose you have arrived to my final question, which I teased a little bit already, which is uh, what are your top Recommendations for people to continue to after they have seen Bo is Afraid. Uh, and you can throw out two, three, or, or even more recommendations. Uh, perhaps one for people who loved the film, one for people who hated it, or, or both. I mean, what films does what Bo uh, it's Afraid does really well to a comparable point so that all the fans will love it, and what are some films that could you know, convince the people who were not taken in by this, that these kind of nightmarish worlds uh, or journeys into dreams uh, can actually be, be excellent?: Well, I think the two really obvious ones that we've already mentioned for people
1: who enjoyed Bear is Afraid would be "I'm thinking of ending things," and also "After hours." Just two very surreal, in in quite different ways, but nightmarish journeys that, that, you know, kind of border on horror, but are a bit more fantastical in their approach. And anyone who likes Bear Afraid, I'm sure, would enjoy those two films if they haven't seen them already. When it comes to recommendations for films who, for people who perhaps didn't enjoy Bear Afraid and kind of had the same viewpoint as I did, I would recommend horror films that tread a a nightmarish path, things like Darren Aronofsky's Mother. Yes, that was the one film I was thinking of saying too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I mean also Black Swan to an extent as well because they're both films that are dealing with notions of whether what we're seeing are really happening or whether they're in the protagonist's head. And then perhaps a final recommendation for a really nightmarish, twisted journey would be uh, Kasper Nuer's Climax, which is very different to Bear Afraid, but if you want twisted, messed up, nightmarish horror, that is the direction that I'd I'd recommend you to
2: go in. I'm probably just going to piggyback a bit on the films that Tom have already. Tom has already recommended. So After Hours is definitely, for me, the biggest comparison piece that came to mind. But any films like After Hours, like The Night Before, the 80s one with Keanu Reeves, or Into the Night with Jeff Goldblum, uh, similar films that deal with uh, crazy things happening after hours. But then another film which is sort of like After Hours, it's actually also written by Joseph Minion, is Motorama from 1991, which is about a young boy who goes through all these different transformations throughout a really long journey. And in fact, the more I think about it, the more Beau is Afraid does actually remind me of Motorama. So that sounds like a really obscure recommendation. Maybe it is. But if you like After Hours and you like Beau is Afraid, Motorama would be a must. If you didn't like Bowers Afraid, Tom did mention Climax and the other Gaspar film that comes to mind also is uh, Into the Void. Although that one's, I guess, even less of a narrative, but maybe if you wanted something which really got into a character's mind and sort of the mindset and the surrealness of it, but maybe without the oddball humour of Bo is Afraid, maybe that would do it for somebody a bit more. But um, otherwise, if you don't like Bo is Afraid, I guess I'll just go for um, any conventional um standard um, horror film. Maybe you'd prefer an Insidious sequel or something. I just know that I wouldn't.
3: Yeah, I don't I, I don't have that many to add to this one. I mean, I can't believe I watched the thing and it never occurred to me to compare it to after hours. It seems really obvious in retrospect. But um I think the only thing I could think of, I don't know how similar it is, is um if you like what if you like the fact in Bo's Afraid, if you like the sort of anxiety-inducing um way that he was sort of endlessly, you know, attacked and piled on. I think maybe uh, The Tenant, the Roman Polanski film has a sort of similar-ish kind of feel to it. And it's also kind of black comedy horror-esque, I suppose. So maybe that one.
0: That's a fantastic one. I don't, I did not think about that film at all. And that's just, it's just such a good recommendation for people who, who love this film. I think went over the films. I think that people who really loved uh, *Boys of Fred* are going to respond to it as well. I think *Mother*, as Tom said, I mean that's the same kind of—it's it's just a living nightmare where everything that goes wrong can go wrong. It just continues to escalate and escalate and escalate. And that's that's such a great recommendation for people who did not thought this went too far. I think *Barton Fink* could be a possible one, uh, leaning into paranoia but not in as extreme a way, a bit more clear in the word comedy. For the people who thought that, you know, it didn't lean into the arthouse angle enough, I think one strong recommendation I have is La Belle Captive, which is another kind of really nightmarish film that takes you into the what could easily be seen as a dream and also a paranoia of its protagonist, which is also a little bit of a proto-lynch film. And just in general Charlie Kaufman, I think Charlie Kaufman has done a lot of films that kind of link into this. Like Synecdoche in New York has the same kind of existentialist uh, comedy, for instance, uh, as well. Even Adaptation has some of the same surreal touches. So I think that so yeah, I think the fans of Both of it should definitely explore everything by Charlie Kaufman. If they haven't, those are really close siblings. And of course, as his previous films, so
1: this is aimed specifically at you, Chris. You need to watch Hereditary soon.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you loved Hereditary but didn't like Bo
2: Afraid,
0: uh, me- like, Bo is Afraid is definitely more of my movie. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I should definitely, uh, definitely try to explore Hereditary eventually. It's
2: kind of interesting because as somebody who found both of Aster's previous films to be massively overpriced, my number one recommendation, if you like Bo Afraid, would actually be to... <laughs> Not, not explore Astor's earlier films or maybe explore them with a little bit of precaution. Uh, I do also have to mention that uh, The Tenant uh, by Roman Polanski is a fantastic recommendation, and I agree that's another great paranoia, anxiety induced film. And another one that also came to mind a bit throughout, but I'm not quite sure what the connection is, would be The House That Jack Built. Just because that one's also got a lot of the character's anxiety. I mean, he's a serial killer in that one. So it's a bit different to uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character in uh, Boa's Afraid. But just his constant going back and checking whether there's a bloodstains or anything. and Just all this obsessive compulsiveness reminded me a lot of the anxiety uh, that we see in Boa's Afraid. And also, The House of Jack Built is also a bit of a journey film, which also, without spoiling it too much, might end up in a metaphorical sort of hell. So both films are sort of going in similar directions, but it might be a bit of an out there recommendation.
0: Oh, and another out there recommendation I was thinking about while you were saying this, which also has a bit of a connection to Jewish fears and anxiety, would be uh, Shiva Baby. I thought about that when we were talking about Mother as well. I mean, it, it's. That's a film that lives entirely in our world, so it doesn't really lean into the nightmarish, but it's just all-out paranoia and guilt. For those who didn't like Poets to Play, that might be the realistic uh, comparison point uh, to it. And one film that I I also talked about when I talked about all this is The Hourglass Sanatorium, which also leans into... uh, certain uh, cultural Jewish elements uh, because it's based on a really famous book by a Jewish author who was sadly killed by the Nazis during World War II but that's just an all-out dream film so it's more, even more overtly over-the-top dream-like spinning reality and dreams into one and we actually have a podcast coming out about it as well where we discuss it along with two other films by uh, Wojciech Haas so that could definitely be
2: a strong recommendation for people who want a film that dives even more into that kind of dream-like, nightmarish logic I mean, the Jewish anxiety film could actually be a subgenre in itself. I mean, I also thought of A Serious Man, which has also got some interesting, like, um, comedic parts in there and a lot of uh, guilt in there and how that plays out. So, yeah, but I I don't know if you sat down and you enjoyed A Serious Man, whether if you went into Bo is Afraid. I don't know if you would really uh, necessarily enjoy it the same way.
0: So yeah, so yeah, maybe for the people who uh, didn't like Boys Afraid that much but want something that ties into a similar kind of anxiety then. And with that then, I think that the people who love Boys Afraid, the people who like Boys Afraid, and the people who didn't particularly care for even hate Boys Afraid has some films that they definitely should look up. I hope that uh, this episode was not as divisive as uh, the film itself if uh, you have anything you want to say about Bo is Afraid or about our interpretations or reactions to it because I know we didn't hate the film as uh, much as many did I know we didn't love the film as much as did feel free to come to the icmforum.com we will have a thread dedicated to this episode where you can just chime in on anything and everything related to Bo is Afraid and this episode so hope to see you there until then, or until our next episode, thank you so much for listening and join us again soon. You have been listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of ICMforum.com.